Hear the reading today from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. Hear the reading of the Lord. My church, we normally hold the clapping till after they've preached, just in case. You know, <laughs> uh, no, I'm so glad to be with you guys this morning. As Matt said, um, my name is Doug Ponder. I'm one of the teaching pastors at, at Remnant Church in downtown Richmond. I've known Matt for a number of years through uh, this small group of like-minded pastors who meet across the greater Richmond area. Um, and so it's a joy to actually be with you this morning, worshiping with you guys today. And I'm excited to continue uh, our, uh, your series, A Community Like No Other. I've been told that you've been talking about things like about how the church is a community that has its own identity and its own mission and a special kind of authority that comes from Jesus himself. And so today we're going to continue that by talking about the unique life or the character of the life of this community uh, like no other. Now, what you know, uh, if you know anything about the history of the church, is that the church began with this small group of less than a couple hundred people that swelled into this massive movement that rocked the Roman Empire to its core on its way to becoming the largest religion in the world. That's just historical fact. What makes it fascinating is that there were no social incentives to becoming a Christian at that time. You, you didn't get any clout or business connections or material advantages for being a Christian. In fact, you lost all of those things if you converted. Very often, Christians were disowned by their families. They were widely ridiculed by rulers, and they were excluded from circles of influence and business and persecuted and even put to death the Roman authorities were uniquely hostile to early Christians, way more than they were to other religious groups. And so in light of the enormous social cost that there were to being a Christian in the first three centuries, it's worth asking, why on earth did anybody become a Christian, right? Why did Christianity grow so exponentially? And don't just say, well, it's because it's true. Well, I mean, I believe that, right? I'm a, I'm a Christian minister, not some other kind. So I believe it's true, but every other religion thinks it's true as well. But they don't all grow like the early church grew. So it's, it's worth pointing out, it's worth asking, why this movement? Why in its own way, it's to its own degree, what, what made the church grow? There are a lot of reasons, a lot. Some of it you've already talked about. It's identity, it's mission, it's authority. But I want to give you the fourth reason today why I think the early church grew and how it continues to grow today. And it's this. Their life was attractively different. Right? It was winsomely countercultural. It was simultaneously intriguing 
and unsettling. See, the life of the church didn't make sense to Romans or to Jews. In fact, it very often offended them, and yet it attracted them at the same time. And I think that's so fascinating because it leads you to the question, well, what kind of life could do that? What kind of life could both offend and attract at the same time? Because we can wrap our minds around one of them, right? You've met offensive people, right? You know what an offensive life looks like. You're like, I don't want to be near that person. They are offensive. I will unfriend them on Facebook. Like, we get that. And we get attractive lives. Like, you have people that you're just drawn to. What kind of life could be both offensive and attractive at the same time? That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to start by looking at the difference of their way of life, right? The difference of their life. When it comes to the early church, the key to understanding the difference of their life is found all throughout that passage uh, that Stephen just read for us. Stephen, right? Yes, good. Uh, So you, you saw words in there like devoted. They devoted themselves and share. They shared their goods with one another and praise. They praise God. Well, think about those words, devoted, share, praise. What do they all have in common? They all involve some kind of giving. In devotion, you're giving yourself over to someone or something. In sharing, you're giving away your resources. In praising, you're giving glory to God. Don't you see what's going on here? When the text says they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and fellowship and the breaking of bread into prayer, when it says they sold their possessions and shared with those in need, when it says that they praise God, this means that they gave themselves over to these things which is just another way of saying that they gave themselves to God and they gave themselves to each other. In other words, what made the early church so unique was this kind of radical giving of themselves, this radical unselfishness that permeated every area of their lives. I mean, it was totally shocking to the surrounding culture because that kind of love had never been seen before. And we know this because we have surviving historical documents from non-Christian contemporaries, sources of people who lived at that time that talk about how radical this way of life seemed to everybody else. One of these writings comes from a guy named Lucian of Samosota. You do not need to remember his name, but we are going to look at what he said because it's really, really intriguing. He was this really popular speaker at the time, and he was this well-known writer who lived in the middle of the second century. He wrote philosophical satire. He liked to ridicule religion, and he was especially harsh towards Christianity. Look at what he wrote about this growing movement of the early church. You see, he says, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their founder, that's Jesus, that they're all brothers from the moment that they're converted. They deny the gods of Greece, they worship their crucified sage, and they live after his laws. And all this they take quite on trust, on faith with the result that they despise worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. This guy preached a better sermon than people who actually believe the Bible sometimes, right? I'm like, that's an amazing summary. It sounds like he read Acts chapter 2. It's ama- I love this. And this is a guy who wasn't friendly to our faith. He's just describing what he saw. That means this was real. This is not like one-time special event that happened in the, in the Bible, and it's never happened again. This was kind of a blueprint for God's people for all time. And here they were 100 plus years later, still living in such a way that even non-believers were looking on and saying, this is a strange group of people, look at what they're doing. And so even though this guy is being sarcastic, he does a great job summarizing what Paul himself says. Uh, 
excuse me, Luke, all who believed were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and their property. They distributed the proceeds to anyone who had need. That's Acts 2, 44 and 45. You see what's going on? Instead of being selfish, they share everything with everybody. And nobody's forcibly seizing these goods, okay? This is not communism. It's communalism. It's a radical unselfishness. It's a kind of love that's unlike anything the world had ever seen. We get sin, right? We get selfishness. Sin makes us selfish. That's one of the main fruits of sin. We know the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of sin are things like selfishness and self-centeredness and pride. And there's so many different ways that that fruit blossoms, you know? One of the ways is greed, which says what's mine is mine. Another is entitlement, which we talked about earlier today. The spirit of entitlement says, what's yours is mine. But then the gospel comes along and creates people who say, what's mine is yours, right? Not what's mine is mine, not what's yours is mine, but what's mine is yours. Radical unselfishness. And they do all this together. You see how the word together keeps coming up in this passage? All the believers were together and held all things in common. Every day they met together and went to the temple. They were breaking bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and generous hearts. Remember who these people were. All right, Jerusalem during the holy days was this place of pilgrimage for Jews and Jewish converts from all around the world. So that means that if you go back and look at verses 9 through 11 in Acts chapter 2, you would see that the earliest Christian converts were people from Asia, Africa, Europe, the Middle East, people from different cultures, different languages. That, 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 that speaks to something you guys are doing here, right? Yet they're all together. They're all sharing with one another. They're giving away their time, their money, their lives. There's a historian of the church who wrote it like this. He says, look, more than any of its competitors, Christianity attracted all races and classes. Judaism never quite escaped its racial bonds. But Christianity, however, gloried in its appeal to Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian. The Greek and the Roman philosophies, they never really won the allegiances of the people, of the masses. They only appealed to the educated, the morally and socially cultured, but Christianity drew the lowly and the unlettered. And yet it developed a philosophy of its own, which commanded the respect of many of the educated. Christianity was also for both sexes, while its rivals were primarily for men. Finally, the church welcomed both rich and poor. No other religion took in so many groups and strata of society. The question must be raised then, why this unprecedented comprehensiveness came to appear in the first in the world through Christianity and not through some other religion? So that's the pressing question you ought to be asking. Why did such a never-before-seen, comprehensive, boundary-defying inclusiveness come into the world through this faith? and not through some other one? That's a great question, even if you already believe it. it will bolster and encourage you in what you already believe, but it's an especially good question that I want to press on you this morning if you're here today and you're kind of sitting on the fence. You're not sure where you are with Jesus. You don't know if you're down with who he is and what he says, and maybe you were drug here half against your will this morning. You've got to do justice with the fact that these ideas that you love and hold near and dear to your heart first came into the world through Christianity uniquely in ways that never happened before or since? You've got to deal with that. Why, why is that the case? It's a great question. But do you know why it's hard for us to answer? It's hard for us to answer because we look at that scenario from our own cultural moment. See, we look at the early church from where we are right now after, listen, after the ideas and the values and the practices of Christianity have already had their way in our society. See, they're not new to us anymore. 
And so these ideas and values have been around for a long time, shaping many things, not perfectly, but truly. And they've had this major effect in our society. And so there are Christian fingerprints over most of the good things in Western culture. But you've got to get out your historical magnifying glass to trace those fingerprints back to their rightful owner. Let me give you three examples of what I'm talking about because this is way abstract. So let's get practical. First, the idea that you should love everybody, even your enemies, that came from Christianity. See, people were familiar with the idea of doing good to those who, who could benefit you. Ancient cultures had these really strict systems of gift reciprocity where I would, the Romans have a slogan that says, I give to you that you may give to me. That's how, that's how they thought about it, you know? It was like the most strict strings attached kind of giving. So when Christianity came on the scene and said, no, we'll give to those who can't give back to us. In fact, we'll even give and love our enemies. Everybody around them was like, what are you talking about? Nobody does this. That doesn't make sense. No other religion, if you look back in the history of the world, that existed before Christianity taught the idea that you should love others who can't help you, especially your enemies. That came from this, this this faith. Love your enemy and do good to those who hate you. Or the idea that you should forgive those who wronged you. Reconcile with those estranged from you instead of getting revenge on them. This is all an extension of the same love. This all came from Christianity. No other religion or culture independently developed this idea. Number two, compassion for the poor and the weak. Look, lots of religions around the world talk about caring for the needy, but there was a greater passion and prominence for that kind of care in Christianity that was unique in all the world. Did you know that Christians invented hospitals? It's true. Back in the day, hospitals were not places that you went to to get better. They were places that you went to to die so that you didn't get other people sick. So nobody created hospitals. They dug ditches. They just put your body there. The Christians said, but you know what? That person who's dying actually still bears dignity as somebody made in the image of God. So let's create a place where they can die with dignity and maybe be healed miraculously, yes. But if not, we'll still love them all the way to the end. Orphanages. Right? Romans would abandon unwanted children on the hilltops to die, but Christians would hide in the woods and wait for them to leave their babies there. And then when they were gone, they would come out and grab them and adopt them as their own. In an era that didn't have birth control, so they had lots of kids of their own already. Lots of mouths to feed, and they're saying, how can we find another one? This is amazing. This is, this is something that came from Christianity in an unparalleled way for the love for the poor and the weak. Universal human dignity and rights. The idea that every human being, no matter what race or class or gender or age or giftness or ability or disability or wealth or poverty, the idea that every human being deserves to be treated with kindness and justice and dignity, that comes from Christianity. And don't just take my word for it. Look it up. Do a comparative religious study, not on Wikipedia, but like in an actual book. Like check it out sometime and you will see. There is, listen, here's what happened Here's what happened historically. Ideas like these three, and that's just three. We could go on for a long time about this, but I don't want to bore you. Those three ideas, they began to spread. These ideals of love and forgiveness and caring for the poor and the weak and the universal dignity of all people. But as they spread, the Greco-Roman elites and the tribal chieftains of pre-Christian Europe and Africa and Asia were not excited. Because, see, they thought that a society based on Christian ideals would completely crumble and fall apart. You're not supposed to reconcile with your enemies. You're supposed to crush them, they thought. You're not supposed to admit your weakness. You're supposed to boast in your strength. You're not supposed to sacrifice for the needy. Everybody knows the strong eat the weak. That's the way it's always been, survival of the fittest, right? But even though the emperors and the kings and the chieftains and the leaders all thought Christian ideals were insane, these ideals triumphed anyway. 
because the kind of life that the church lived was attractively different. Christians were the kind of people who said, you can hate us and mock us and even hurt us, but we're still going to love you and forgive you and care for your poor and treat you with dignity anyway. So these ideals won out. They triumphed and they transformed. And that is why they seem like common sense to people today. People who live in houses that live and sleep on Christian furniture that don't know where it came from. Every time I see in somebody's yard, I live in, I live in Churchill, uh, a fairly progressive neighborhood in downtown Richmond, and there are signs in almost every yard that say, we love our neighbors. And then they go on to list all the different kinds of people that they love. They're gay neighbors, they're straight neighbors, they're old neighbors, they're young neighbors, they're immigrant neighbors, and so on and so on and so on. And every time I see one of those, I think, well, I'm glad you love your neighbors. I know a guy who said to do that. That's good. But do you know why it's a good idea to do that? And do you know where that idea came from? And do you realize that you wouldn't love your neighbors if it hadn't been for this faith that triumphed and won the day and impacted a society that no longer even recognizes where it came from? That's true. All right? That's the, 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 the difference of their way of life. But we haven't, we haven't really preached a sermon until you get to Jesus. So we've got to talk about the source of that difference. Right, Because we could talk about the difference of their way of life all day, but if we just try to go out there and do that in our own strength, man, it's going to fail miserably. So let's talk about the source of that difference. Where did it come from? Well, you know this. Shortly before Jesus was crucified, he summarized his own identity and mission and authority in this way. Mark 10.45, he said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when Jesus did this, when he fulfilled the words that he spoke here, he gave himself away on the cross, just like he'd given himself away through his entire earthly life and ministry. When Jesus did that, he wasn't just giving us a powerful example or a life to imitate. I mean, he does want us to imitate him, for sure. They're the ultimate example, but there's so much more than that. In the life and the death of Jesus, God didn't just give us an example. He gave us himself. God did that. The, now, he's the ultimate standard, right, of what is good and bad and right and wrong. So now you, we think about that and typically in terms of, like, how do we know what is good? How do we know what is right? How do we know what is true? And the answer is, well, what does God's word say? Or what is the character of God like? Or what is his heart or his spirit? That, that's all good. But you know what's deeper behind all of that? It's God's own identity is the standard the principle, the fundamental principle, the governing reality of the universe? And what do we see God doing on the cross? We see him giving himself away. The death of Jesus is like the cornerstone of God's being, the center of his heart, self-giving love. God is the kind of God who loves to give himself away. Look, have you, have you ever seen an Amish terrorist? It's a super weird question, but just roll, just roll with it for a second. Why? Somebody, I, I've, I've, I've preached a sermon in my own church a couple years ago, and I had somebody come afterwards, and they were like, I heard about one one time. I was like, I knew, I knew somebody was going to bring that up. Here's what he did. He found another Amish man in a rival Amish community and cut his beard off. That's the worst he's ever, like, that's the worst Amish act of terrorism ever, was cutting another bro's beard off. That's about as violent as you get. Why? Why? It's because one of the fundamental principles of the Amish community is a commitment to nonviolence, a life of peace. So to transgress that means to cease to be Amish at all. This is an ideal that defines them and drives all they do. What's the fundamental principle of core Christianity? All Christians everywhere, not just Amish. 
What's the fundamental core? What is the organizing principle that makes sense of everything? The glue that holds it all together. The center, the hub on the wheel from which all the spokes radiate. Isn't it this? It's the self-giving love of Jesus. It's the good news that even though Jesus was mocked and beaten and abandoned by the very people that he came to forgive and heal and restore, he gave himself away for us anyway. In the most radical act of unselfish love that there ever was or ever will be, Jesus gave himself away for you and for me, taking onto himself all our guilt, all our shame, all our pain, all our sins, all our selfishness, and he gave himself over to the just judgment of God in our place. And he did this. He gave himself away so that we could be forgiven of sin, adopted forever, and transformed for good, starting now. That was the source of the difference of this community, their way of life. It was the new life of God's Spirit actively at work among them as they trusted Jesus, obeyed Jesus, and imitated Jesus. You know, and, and there's a potential objection that comes up at this point sometimes. Where somebody, maybe if you're here with us today, you're kind of on the fence uh, about Jesus, you're not really sure. Or maybe your friends that you talk to, you try to share something like this with them, and they're like, yeah, well, can't I have the stuff that Christianity brought into the culture, the goods that came with it, without actually having to trust Jesus and do what he says, right? Like, if I like the ideals of loving other people and treating folks with dignity, can't I have the values of Christianity without having to follow Jesus? And I mean, technically the answer is yes. It's a free country. You are free to be inconsistent. But, <laughs> but I would say you shouldn't want to be, right? You shouldn't want to be inconsistent. You should ask yourself. You need to ask yourself. How did a mostly poor, mostly minority group of people, why would they have ever thought that, guys, if we just get together, we act totally nice, then some people in power are going to stop harassing us and even convert and join our movement. That's so foolish. Don't, don't think that. You can't keep the fruit of the flower without the root that gives it life. And the root is Jesus. See, what actually motivated the early Christians to live differently was that they were convinced. They were sure. They were certain. As certain as you and I could be of anything that you are certain of that they had seen and eaten with and talked with Jesus after he gave himself away for us on the cross. And when a man like that, who did the things that Jesus did and said the things that Jesus said, comes back from the dead in victory, that changes everything. It certainly changes you. If you want the ideals of Christianity, then you need the truth of Christianity. You need the facts that make the ideals true and meaningful. Otherwise, the world is only physical matter. And humans are only animated pieces of meat. And life is only an accident. And the future is only an empty universe. So why care about being nice or doing good or living for anything? But if Jesus really is risen from the dead, and he is, then we should trust him, imitate him, obey him. He's the true and only source of the attractively different, winsomely countercultural, radically unselfish life. So I'm going to close today by showing you what the shape of that life looks like for us today. But before we can talk about that, we got to understand one thing. When we talk about the Christian life, we are not giving people a recipe. We are giving them a job description. You know the difference between a recipe and a job description, right? With a recipe, how does it work? You, have certain, you start with something like raw ingredients, and if you follow the steps in the right order, in the right way, when you're done, you have something that you didn't have before, a cake, cookies. 
something else you would bake. I'm running out of ideas. Something delicious and wonderful, right? Bread, whatever. You ha- but you didn't have that first. So you had to follow the steps. You had to follow them in the right order. You had to do them in the right way. And then only after you did, 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 did you receive and become. It's not like that with Christianity at all. It isn't, it isn't that Jesus gives us some kind of uh, 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 recipe to follow in order to become a Christian. He gives us a job description after he has already made us one. See, unlike a recipe, a job description tells you what you will do and what your role will be after you get the job, after you're accepted, after you're welcome to the team. That's how it was with the early church. That's how it is with us, too. We don't do the stuff mentioned in Acts 2, 42 through 47 in order to become Christians. No, we do this because the self-giving love of Jesus has already forgiven us on the cross, already accepted us, already given us his spirit who is transforming us. And so even before we start living differently, we've already begun to love differently because of the love with which we've been loved. And that love creates a whole new orientation, right? A whole new direction. A whole new world. It's true. Actually, I first wrote this sermon before the new Aladdin was out, but it has fresh relevance. Don't you just love God's Spirit does weird things like that? (laughs) It's true. It's true because you are no longer the center of your life anymore. Jesus is in his self-giving love for sinners who didn't love him first. You can't believe that message and not be changed. And so uh, pastor and author Scott Sauls, he tries to summarize everything we've been saying so far, and he says it like this. The more conservative our belief in Jesus, the more liberal our loving will be. That's not political, that's theological. The more conservative, that means the more sure we are that the God of the universe is a God who loves to give himself away. The more convinced you are that that's true, that the self-giving love of Jesus is the cornerstone of God's own heart, the more sure you are that that's true, the more free and radical and liberal your loving will be. The more we look at Jesus, the less we look at ourselves. The more we cling to his self-giving love for us, the less we love ourselves at the expense of others. The more we appreciate God's forgiveness of our many sins against him, then the more we're able to forgive the very few sins of others against us. That's why Jesus himself said, by this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. John 13, 35. Jesus' love is our new anthem. It's our fundamental principle. It's the source of our new life. And that life, that new life, comes with new rhythms. Our church has four basic rhythms, which we try to base on what we find here in this passage in Acts chapter 2. I have not modified these points this morning, even though I'm not talking to my own church today. And here's why. I don't think we're special. And I don't think that the four rhythms that we're doing are things that we made up. And I don't think there's something that God intends only us to do. I think it's just what he wants all of his people to do in all times and all places. In fact, you might not call them by this name, but I guarantee your church already does every one of these things. The first is that we gather. Look back at verse 42 and 46. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and breaking bread in their homes. And they ate their food with joyful and humble hearts. See, the church is gathering Where? In big groups at the temple, but also in small groups in their home. These big group gatherings are kind of like what we're doing now in Sunday morning services where we gather for pastoral exhortations to remember and believe and apply the good news of Jesus and the gospel to our lives. And the early church did this. And so we also devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching about Jesus. Look, let's set the record straight. 
about why God's people have been doing this for thousands of years. Exactly what we're doing now, gathering on a Sunday. Because once in a blue moon, you'll meet folks and they'll say things like, you know, the early church, you know, they, they didn't do it anything like we're doing today. That's just silly. There are actually Roman spies that would infiltrate church services and describe what they would do. And they would say, well, they would get up before dawn. And we don't do that part, right? But they would do that part. Uh, and then they would go and they said that they would read a letter and they would sing hymns to Christ as if he were a God. And then they would eat his flesh and drink his blood. And it's kind of weird and I don't know what they're doing. But I love that we have these letters because I'm like, they're describing a church service and it's basically what we're doing now. It's fantastic. I love it. So, so the early church has been doing this for thousands of years. Why? It, it's, not, it's not so we can get some tips and tricks like a, like a TED Talk to help us figure out how we can tweak our life and live it a little better. Because first and foremost, the Christian faith is not about giving you a message you can do something with. It's about hearing a message that does something to you. you see? And so we gather each week, even when we don't feel like it, because we believe that a lifetime of devoting ourselves to hearing the good news will do something to us that could not be attained otherwise. Words like humble and joyful and grateful come to mind. Those are not things you can achieve by trying a little harder. You can't make yourself a joyful person. You can't make yourself a humble person. You can't make yourself a grateful person. But those are things the Spirit of God can make you. Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by what? Hearing the word about Christ. So we gather, but we also gather in our homes in smaller groups of people, right? Where we know each other intimately and we love each other deeply and we serve each other unselfishly and we forgive each other frequently because we're, we're pretty busted. And even people you like, even people you like can get on your nerves, right? And there are a lot of needed service opportunities on a Sunday morning and churches across America, even here. So you should always find ways to resist the urge to turn a Sunday morning into an extension of the consumeristic life. So don't hear me saying that you shouldn't serve on a Sunday. You absolutely should. But this is the tip of the iceberg, right? Most of the real occasions for giving yourself away are going to be found in the time you spend with the people in your church community here. As you spend time with them, you're going to be forced. It's not too strong a word. Forced to consider others instead of looking out only for your own interest. Just as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, consider others more important than yourselves and look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. God has put these people here in this room, in your life, as a continual reminder that your life is not about you. It's about Jesus and what he's done for these people. And if he loved them to the cross, then surely you can love them as well. So we gather. Two, we pray. They devoted themselves to prayer. Acts 2.42, prayer is acknowledging our dependence on God, expressing our need for him. It could be as short as God help me or as long as the prayers in the Psalms, right? It can be as formal as the Lord's prayer in Matthew 6 or as freewheeling as a child's prayer at the dinner table. Jesus, thank you for forks. <laughs> I have a six-year-old, a five-year-old, a two-and-a-half-year-old, and a, a three-month-old. And right now my six- and five-year-old competitively try to say who gets to pray at dinner time. And after they're finished, the two-and-a-half-year-old always wants to jump in as well. But his verbal skills ain't so great. So nobody, I need an interpreter. He's speaking in tongues every dinner at the, at the, at the prayer time. I don't know what he's saying. <laughs> we just tell him it's great. Uh, he doesn't end with amen either. It's always the end. Like it's a story. <laughs> but Jesus knows, right? Jesus knows. The, the, the word tells us the spirit helps us when we don't know how to pray as we ought, right? And he does not know how to pray as he ought. So the important thing is that you actually pray, right? That's what the church is always doing in the book of Acts. Somebody gets into trouble, what do they do? They pray. Somebody has a need that they can't meet, they pray. Somebody is scared, they pray. Somebody's persecuted, they pray. Prayer just makes sense in light of the mission that we've been given, doesn't it? The church has a mission that's too 
big for us to accomplish, but too important for us to fail at. So we got to pray. Before Jesus leaves his disciples, right, he gives them that assignment we call the Great Commission. The mission to make disciples of the whole world. And Jesus says, but don't do anything about that except for pray until I send the Holy Spirit. You guys remember that? So for 10 days they prayed. 10 days they pray. Then Peter stands up to pray and a preach, and he does that for about like 10 minutes. And then about 3,000 people get saved. You see that? Pray for 10 days, preach for 10 minutes, 3,000 people get saved. Too often we pray for 10 minutes, talk for 10 days, and then like three people get saved. Right? <laughs> Our zeros are in the wrong place. Right? That's how important prayer is. In my church, the pastors gather every, uh, every week to pray before service begins. And then we begin by praying before God's word. And then we pray again after it. And then we pray after the sermon is preached. And then we pray again before we respond uh, to communion. And, and then we pray again to close the service. And I love, I see similar rhythms here. You guys just punctuating your songs with prayer, beginning the service with prayer, closing everything around with prayer. That makes sense because we're dependent on God for all things. And prayer is the rhythm that shows that we believe what Jesus says when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Prayer proves that we believe that. So we gather, we pray. Number three, we give. Verse 44 and 45, all believers are together. They held all things in common. They sold their possessions and their property, and they distributed the proceeds to all as anybody had need. Look, early Christians didn't have bank accounts, right? There were no such thing as debit cards or online donations or the super cool text message giving that you guys have. They didn't have that, right? So if somebody like an individual or, or the whole church had a great need, the only way to meet it was to give to them directly. So that's what they're doing here in Acts 2. And, you know, we're still able to give in those ways, like direct one-to-one type of giving. There was a family in our church whose foundation collapsed underneath of their house, and their crummy scrub, insidiously evil, wicked insurance company was like, yeah, we don't cover that. What do you cover? Their foundation collapsed. Their house is falling. What do you cover? It's outrageous. So $30,000 to fix a foundation. Nobody has that kind of coin just sitting around. So somebody in our church heard about it, created a GoFundMe, and there's an outpouring of love, not just from our church, but from people, God's people all around Virginia who heard about this family, gave, so they actually had a home to live in. That kind of generosity takes place at a one-to-one level. But, of course, we also give to the church as a whole. You see that all throughout the New Testament. Why do we do that? Because we're supporting the ministries of our whole church family, as well as all the other churches and missionaries that I'm sure your church supports, both here in America and around the world. And you've got to understand, this kind of giving is critical. It's, it's soul-sustaining stuff. Jesus wasn't lying when he said it's better to give than receive. He meant that it's better for your soul. It's such a tragedy that the more money people make, the less they tend to give as a percentage of their income. The poorest people in America still give the most as a total percentage of what they make. Isn't that backwards? It ought to be the case that the more we make, the more we're able to give by far. So we follow the example of the Lord Jesus in this, not asking how little we can get away with giving, but how much we can give for the glory of God and the good of those in need. And just so you know, your your pastor didn't ask me to say any of that this morning. I'm saying that as a, a pastor myself, as somebody who, who have, feels that tendency in my own heart. My wife and I make now almost twice what we did when we were first married 10 years ago. And that doesn't say, that's not because I make a lot now. It's because of how little we made back then. Our, we had six part-time jobs between the two of us while I was still in seminary and she was still in grad school. And I don't think our first tax return was even $30,000 between six part-time jobs. So it's weird to now make like twice that amount. And at the time, if you told me, oh, you know, one day 
if you've been pastoring for, for 10 years and have four children, you know, you might make in the neighborhood of $60,000. I probably would have said, well, nobody needs that much money. Oh my gosh, if I made that much, I would probably give all the extra 30K to the church. But now that I make that, my goodness. Well, I don't know. I mean, I might, I might need that, that new car. And, you know, it's kind of, I like my AC a little lower than, than maybe I should. And you know how it goes. Do I really need the name brand cheese? I mean, that Kroger cheese is not as good. It happens. It happens. It's tragically true. The more we make, the less we tend to give as a percentage. So I feel that. And the only thing I know that Jesus uses to fight that is this act of giving, which is like exercise for greedy hearts. So you can't wait to the end of your life when you have a busload of money to give because that's like waiting to the end of your life to run a marathon. It's not going to go well for you if you don't exercise between now and then. It just won't. So we, we gather, we pray, we give, and lastly we go. And then I'm done. They were praising God, enjoying favor with all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. You know what this verse shows us? It's the fruit of the life of God's people. It was the result of this attractively different life of imitating the self-giving love of Jesus. And that's why so many people came to believe in him and be saved by him. But don't overlook where and how this happened. The number of people uh, who were being saved and added to their number every day did not primarily come from those who heard the gospel at one of the church's large-scale gatherings in the temple. The, the rest of the book of Acts shows us that actually it was God's people preaching and praying and serving this attractively different way of life that was lived in their neighborhoods and the fields and the marketplace. That's where the growth continued to go. So that's why the final rhythm of the church is going. We gather in order to be scattered, right? We gather to hear the good news. We pray for God to work in our hearts. We give in response to the self-giving love of Jesus, and then we go. We scatter. We leave as people who are sent out into the world with good news. And you know what the result is? God uses the radically unselfish life of his people, infused with the self-giving love of Jesus, to do what only God can do. Add to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. He didn't just do it once. He's been doing that for thousands of years, and he's going to keep doing it here as you guys keep entrusting yourselves to the one who gave himself for you. Let me pray and we'll respond this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this good news of your self-giving love. We confess that very often we fail to appreciate just how radical what you have done for us is and how life-transforming it ought to be. So all we ask this morning, Holy Spirit, is that you would remind us again of the good news of the gospel and allow the message that is in itself all good, all the way to the core, to change us into the kind of people who actually want to do that which we otherwise never would have wanted to do. Help us to see what that looks like and to embrace it as people who have been loved by you, forgiven by you, and therefore are in love with you and desperately want other people to come to know you as well. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.